The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash dig Jacobin, all in lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Matthew Countryman writes, quote, Historians of Black power have tended to depict the movement as consisting of a series of pronouncements from national figures like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rapp Brown, Huey Newton and Maulana Karinga, Angela Davis and Kathleen Cleaver. Similarly, conventional accounts of the period of civil rights struggle that preceded Black Power's rise are often stripped down to a set of iconic figures and moments. Mostly in the 1950s and 60s, mostly in the Deep South. But what Countryman shows is that the Black freedom struggle was both long in time and nationwide in scope, and more specifically, that Black struggle was for decades an explosive and dynamic force at the center of Philadelphia politics. National politics in general, and the Southern movement in particular, of course, loomed large, and they powerfully shaped local movements. But local movements in cities like Philly were also profoundly just that, local. This is the subject of Countryman's remarkable 2006 book, Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia. And it's what I'm interviewing Countryman about in this episode. Philly is a city that is very, very dear to me, and Up South is one of my favorite books ever. I've wanted to do a show on it for a long time, and I'm glad to have had the opportunity to reread it to prepare for this interview. Up South traces the history of Black Philly politics beginning in the early 20th century, when Black people made up just a small proportion of the city's population, just 5.5% in 1910 an era when black and white activists came to embrace the creed of racial liberalism, the notion that progressive integration would progressively chip away at white people's irrational bigotry. But as the Great Migration grew the city's black population, from 11% in 1930 to 18% in 1950, 26% in 1960, and more than 33% in 1970, 
racial liberalism's promise was increasingly revealed to be an empty one for the city's working class and poor black masses. Black people were not just excluded from jobs thanks to overt discrimination and bigotry. There was a newly expansive system of residential segregation that trapped black people in ghettos in places like North Philly and so also relegated them to second-class schools as jobs and white people fled to rapidly growing whites-only suburban developments that funded their own first-class schools close to those good jobs. What happened next was that a dizzying array and far-from-homogenous set of new models for black politics, often steeped in militancy and black power, emerged to fill the void as it became clear that racial liberalism and middle-class moderate interracialism had failed. From aggressive mass pickets targeting racially exclusionary construction unions and black capitalism to revolutionary nationalism and welfare rights, black people in Philadelphia sought to secure power in the city, all at the very moment when suburbanization and deindustrialization meant that access to substantive power in the city was fast disappearing. And white reaction exploded too, embodied in Philly in the city's brutal and demagogic police commissioner turned mayor, Frank Rizzo, a proto-Trumpian figure who promised that law and order would secure society against black threats. I can't summarize it all here, but ultimately, the story is about the rise of a new black political class, which won, in significant part, a pyrrhic victory of political power in cities at the very moment that cities lost control of much of a region's taxable wealth, all while state and national politics took a hard right turn. The forces of deindustrialization, suburbanization, and segregation operated and continue to operate at these much larger regional, national, and global scales, scales over which poor black people have little control. The story Countryman tells in Up South is really the history of the present moment, where police and prisons regulate the boundaries of a hyper-segregated, unequal, economically deprived, and exclusionary metropolis a situation that has this year prompted nationwide revolts from Philly to Minneapolis and all over the place. Up South is an essential book to read right now, and I encourage you to join a Dig book club and read Up South with fellow Dig listeners. Dig book club members will then meet with Matthew Countryman on Zoom on September 12th to discuss the book. If you'd like to join a Dig book club and meet with Countryman, visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club to sign up. That's thedigradio slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Finally, briefly, before we get moving on this interview, this podcast only exists because so many of you who listen to it support us with monthly contributions at patreon.com slash the dig we put no episodes behind a paywall because we are deeply committed to everyone regardless of their ability to pay having access to these interviews our listenership has grown substantially during the pandemic and i'm really grateful that you all find these analyses so useful to understanding the world 
in your quest to transform it. So if you can afford to support us, we need you to do so. What's more, if you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a free left-wing book or books in the mail as a thank you. If you care about this podcast and you can afford to, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. The website is pretty self-explanatory and it'll only take you a few minutes to figure it out. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks. And here's Matthew Countryman chair of the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, where he is also a professor of Afro-American Studies and History. In addition to Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia, he is currently working on a book about the role of African-American mayors in national debates on race and poverty in the late 20th century. Matthew Countryman, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. From liberal reforms of the the 1940s and 50s to mass action in the early 60s to black power in the late 60s through the 70s, Philadelphia, which was for a very long time the nation's third largest city, it was consumed by conflict over race, class, power, and I don't think that's very often remembered, including, I suspect, by many Philadelphians. What was the conventional historiography of the civil rights movement? And what do we instead see when we expand our timeline and diversify our geographic focus? What, in other words, does a longer story and wider lens reveal about black politics and struggle in the 20th century that is otherwise obscured? Um, well, for the longest time, the, the historiography of the civil rights movement was of a Southern movement, um, one that began, depending on your narrative, either with the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 54 or the Montgomery bus boycott uh, two years later. And it was a narrative of triumph in the South based in Martin Luther King's leadership and in the vision of a, a, a integrated society um, and on the promise of nonviolent protest. Um, that culminates in the federal legislation in 1964 and 65, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and then is distorted or undercut by the militancy, that, the racial anger of the North, and particularly the, the, the focus on black power. That narrative is, you know, remains powerful. Um, people still, still adhere to it. I, I do think that the Black Lives Matter movement has begun to you know move it in certain important ways but at the time i was starting my research that was the dominant understanding to the extent to which one might talk about the north um one would talk about black power as this kind of disruptive almost declension and declining the the, the the disruption of the movement but even that was not necessarily seen as all that important in fact i had colleagues who couldn't get their books published that were focused on Black power activism in the North because it wasn't seen as interesting to um, or useful to understanding the movement. What I what I hope to do in my book was to is to recast the civil rights movement not as a, as a regional movement but as a national movement whose origins preceded. Um, in fact, you know, the Montgomery Bush boycott. In fact, you couldn't have a 
that kind of a Southern movement start unless there was something happened before, you know, at least as early as the 1941 March on Washington movement led by A. Philip Randolph for equal employment rights in, in wartime production industries. And that um, is always a national movement. It's always addressing uh, uh, the ways in which race are, is distorting of the American pr uh, promise and denying full citizenship rights to, uh, to African-Americans or in the lingo of the day, Negroes. Um, what a Philadelphia focus does is to show us how that took place at the local level, uh, how, in fact, because of Southern power uh, in Congress, it was a movement that had um, could only achieve its goals uh, through local action, and which um, demonstrated that the impact that civil rights legislation could have first at the local level, um, but also then began to run up against the limitations of that, legis of that legislative achievement in northern uh, northern cities. Um, and it's that struggle that leads to the increasing militancy of the movement, not just of black power, but even the militancy or the, the increasingly radicalization of the demands of Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the late 1960s, you know, and then the emerging um, demands of a, of a black political uh, class for full a full stake in the in the um, political institutions of the society. One key thing along these lines that histories like yours and Tom Sugru's Origins of the Urban Crisis show is that the racially conservative white reaction began far earlier than the 1970s and 80s, and so it wasn't this inevitable reaction to the excesses of black power and the new left. In fact. What you show is that it took root in these very concrete conflicts over the Great Migration and Black struggle for what are now considered to be the pretty minimal, ordinary demands of the civil rights movement for, for neighborhood workplace and school integration. This seems really important today, given how much left and racial justice organizing tends to be critiqued and evaluated on, on the basis of its potential for prompting or eliciting right wing reaction. I think this is this is a, a crucial point and one that I that actually the history helps us understand a lot better. It goes without saying that the Southern system of de jure segregation and the, the racial violence that un, un, underpinned it was, on a day to day basis, uh, much more oppressive than anything that you know was significantly more oppressive, right? And it, it's why people left in part, right? They left for economic opportunity to go north in the Great Migration, and but I also left because the rule of law did not apply to black life in the South. But that fact masked the ways in which the northern racial system was uh, as anti-democratic and, um, and was deeply oppressive and denying of black opportunity. And so, you know, as a society, we have um, tisked racial segregation in the South as a way to, in fact, evade the persistence and the, and the pervasiveness of racial segregation through um, space um, as opposed to through law that takes place in the North. That's a system that begins to evolve in the 1920s, that is in, established in the post-war moment um, through white flight, uh, suburbanization, and then is reproduced generation after generation since. Um, and we can we celebrate the places it, it has been somewhat reduced, but do so at the peril of ignoring its persistence 
and depth of, of, of its commitment. Politically, what that's meant among Northern whites, right, is that, again, that tis tisking of Southern racism and of what Ku Klux Klans and hoods and uh, explicit racial bias has allowed for significant parts of the white polity in the North, liberal and conservative, to downplay their own investment in racial segregation in their communities, but in their schools and in their and in their workplaces. What is this narrative about left generally and black, particularly movement excess being the cause of white reaction? What does that conventional wisdom convey and what is the actual history show? Right. It, it, in part, it, it defines black demand, not as a desire for the application of democratic principles across racial lines. You know, even the, even if the, you know taking on the, 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 the at face value the promises of democratic capitalism, it, it redefines black demand as excessive, as uh, seeking special favor, as demanding um, retribution or or compensation rather than uh, the pr full promises of of you know of the American century and of, the, of this this idea of of the American promise. But it's also I think what's extraordinary is the kind of ability to to look at black aspiration through a dual lens, where when it's against explicit forms of bias and prejudice as the Southern form, to see to, to position oneself as supporting it, even as one opposes as excessive the demands that change happen in one's own workplace, one's own neighborhood, one's own school district. And so that dichotomy in, in white politics, you know, and here to give the liberal version of the present moment, right, the ways in which even liberal college towns People are all horrified by uh, police violence, except, but they see their own police forces, which are really un, in, in, undifferentiated in terms of who makes them or what their policies are from, from these places that did these terrible things as fair and trustworthy and, and, and protecting us. Um, and so that notion of protecting us and protecting what we have achieved cuts across ideological grounds in white politics in the society and has done so consistently. Uh, since the World War II era. Let's step back to the beginning of your story chronologically. Black political power in early 20th century Philly really emerges in part from party competition for a black vote that's suddenly growing quite quickly. And in 1928, you have Herbert Hoover, a Republican, obviously, winning overwhelming support in black precincts. But then Less than a decade later, in, in 36 and then in 40, black support goes overwhelmingly to FDR. How did the New Deal, both nationally and in its particular concrete local form, help create the liberal coalition in general and the liberal civil rights coalition in particular that emerged in Philly? And to what degree was it the liberal economic agenda, the New Deal economic agenda that made this coalition a reality? And to what extent was it the result of local Democrats support for civil rights measures, like a ban on segregation and public accommodations that Republicans who had controlled so much of the black vote refused to support? So, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's, a, I think, a fairly nuanced and, and complicated story to, to try to tease out those different aspects. You know, the first thing I'll say is that we have to understand the New Deal as, you know, a product of a Democratic Party was not ideologically liberal in the ways we would understand it today, but rather a coalition of, of a range of forces 
and which explicitly implements the New Deal with the promise to, to its Southern supporters that it will not disrupt the racial system of the South. What that means to Northern Blacks, right, is I think that, prim- first of all, people understand that, right? There, there's no illusions about what the Democratic Party has become. But rather, there's a sense here that we are being included, even in some ways partially. Um, not, this is not full inclusion. This is not racially equitable. But it is inclusion in some of these economic initiatives, particularly uh, you know, things like the WPA and other places, for the first time. Right? The federal government is for the first time offering to include us in programs that are saving the nation right? and saving, particularly saving working people. These are not perfect programs, but they are uh, a huge difference, right? And so that's, the, I think, the primary force that brings blacks to the, to vote for for FDR. I mean, that's what he offers them. But it is another stage for a local party, a state party in, in Pennsylvania, to win black votes, particularly because of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia were Republican machine states, right? So that what the machine, the Republican machine at the time, offered. Were you know was patronage was uh, and it wasn't you know much. This goes back to W. B. Du Bois's work on the Philadelphia Negro early in the 20th century, right? What blacks are getting through these political clubhouses, the Republican is not is not a lot. You know these are a little bit of money on election day, part time or you know day labor jobs. I mean these are not these are not what other parts of the community are getting, but they are they are significant and necessary resources. Second class patronage, but patronage nonetheless. Exactly, yeah, well put. Um, and so to, to win black voters from that at the state and local level, first of all, it's a generational project, right? So, well, uh, black votes tend to go to Democrats in state elections, state representatives in the governorship by the late 30s. It takes until the late 40s to get those votes in the city, in, in Philadelphia city elections. But with their, with they, to get those votes, that's where, you, where, the, where black voters demand and black political leaders demand at least symbolically civil rights action, right? So... The Democrats in Pennsylvania state legislature um, do what the Republicans had refused to do, which is to pass a law banning segregation and public accommodations in the mid-1930s. And that is crucial to not only winning black votes for governor, but but actually to them um, sl- slotting and winning majority black uh, state house seats in Philadelphia in, the, in 1936 and 38. And then the same thing will happen finally in the late 40s when sort of the shifts of the New Deal finally create the conditions where the Democratic Party, which had been really an appendage of the Republican Party in the city of Philadelphia until the mid-1940s, it was really literally run by the same machine operation that ran the Republican Party, finally breaks that organizational hold. And when it's clear that the Democrats can win local elections, then black votes again shift over because, um, but, but they do that on a civil rights agenda, right? So this Philadelphia Democratic Party announces its support, particularly through the appointment of, of Black civil rights attorney Sadie Alexander to President Truman's Civil Rights Committee in 1946, that support for a civil rights agenda uh, becomes crucially important to, to winning over black votes in the city and to the establishment right, of Philadelphia as a democratic city in which, based on the votes of uh, black voters, based on the votes of white liberals, and based on the votes of the, and the support of, the, of uh, white-led trade unions, that three-part support, it all has to happen, happen at the same time. Um, and that's what happened in the late 1940s. Another key piece of context for this this era are the two world wars, which shaped Black Philly dramatically, shaped mm-hmm. the entirety of Philly dramatically, of course, but drew huge numbers of migrants from the South to work in the city's defense-related industries. But but the two wars really shaped 
black politics in pretty different ways. During World War I, you had leaders like Du Bois who thought that patriotic fervor and black people doing their part would lead to progress, which is not at all what happened. Black workers were met with violence on the streets when they sought housing outside of the overcrowded South Philly slum and also attempting to get jobs, including this 1917 lynching of a black man hired to work at the South Philly Naval Shipyard who was lynched by a mob that included uniformed soldiers. And then in contrast, civil rights activists during World War II took on the double V or double victory program to defeat fascism abroad and racism at home. And so in 1944, black workers were in this very different position. For example, black workers on Philly's trolley and subway system had support from the CIO and from FDR who came in and broke a hate strike against integrating the workforce. How did the two world wars shape black Philly politics in such different ways? And relatedly, what accounts for such different black politics during the two different wars? Well, I think the story, I mean, the answer to the second part of the question is pro- probably has much to do with national, with the status of the, of national black leadership at the different times. But also they have to do with the differences between a, a moment in which we can now look back on as, social, as scientific racism, right? The idea that in fact, blacks are not only are blacks biologically inferior, but therefore it, it is dem- logical in a democratic society to treat them at, uh, to, as, less than, as less than full citizens, right? And to deny them in, in practice, if not by the constitution, uh, the right to vote. So you ha- so the, the logic that, that folks like Du Bois are, are pursuing at the time, right, is, is premised on the fact that, you know, they have very little, almost no political power, right? That, um, black communities, with the exception of, of the south side of Chicago and a little bit of Harlem at that point, really are not large enough in the, outside of the south to have any political influence. They're really dependent on the goodwill of the white political system. And the only prompt, you know, the only possibility, right, is to essentially claim citizenship based on service. I mean, that's what that's what Du Bois is doing when he when he when he urges African-Americans to close ranks in support of democracy on the promise that later that will we will we will demonstrate our service to the nation and we will be rewarded. It is, you know, obviously deeply ironic and, and, and in some ways tragic. I mean, many always tragic, right? the level of violence that's then uh, brought back onto black communities, both in the war years, as the 1917 incident um, you described, but even more so when the sol- black soldiers returned from Europe. And, and you know, Philadelphia is just, you know, this is the hot, the um, red summer of 1919 in Chicago. You have white soldiers in uniform um, murdering blacks in front of the White House in 1919. You have the court martialing of black troops in Texas. You know, it is, it is a pogrom that it is that is that is exercised on um, black communities in the north after World War One, and they lack the political resources to resist. You know, they they do resist as best as possible, but it's it's really a devastating time. Um, and it's you know, and linked directly to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan as a northern political force in the 1920s, and and that, and and that legacy lasts. I mean, that's a generational process. And as late as 1938. The FBI is reporting that there are tens of thousands of members of pro-Nazi organizations in, in Pennsylvania. So, you know, this is a we need to rediscover just the power of that racist uh, right wing politics of the 1920s and 30s, because so much of it is seems to be returning to us um, a century later. 
World War II, though, is different. And that, you know, is um, in part the work of the civil rights community through the 20s and 30s, in part uh, an academic movement um, to discredit biological racism and um, that, that has some crucial impact, in part the reaction to, um, well, in large part the reaction to, to, to Nazism and the ways in which quite explicitly Hitler's racial regime was based on the American model. All of these things are crucial and, and particularly lead to real significant shifts in American liberalism. Because the, 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 you have the Second World War, which is the kind of New Deal government's war against fascism abroad. And this is simplistic, but this is kind of the vibe rather than Woodrow Wilson nakedly kind of racist war sure. you know, tied up in in the imperialism and reaction of the time. And so you have a, the first war steeped in reactionary politics and the second war in a variety of complicated ways does unleash a lot more progressive currents. Well, and, and you're right. And I think here's, you know, Wilson is a Democrat. He believes in democracy, but it's a white man's democracy, right? Um, as much as he wants to, you know, it's the war to save democracy. It's the democracy of, it's a, it's a white only democracy. He's trying to say in contrast Right. The evidence of the, you know, the racialism of, of, of Nazism is you know, now identified as the pro, as it as its you know, most important characteristic of its anti of its of its of its, its, of its anti-democratic nature. And in part, that's because, of course, it's you know, it's it's raging its racism on on Jews and other European minorities, but also because so much of that biological racist project has been discredited. Um, through the activism in the United States, through intellectual work, I mean, a figure like Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish sociologist, who is brought to the, you know, bring, comes to the U.S. At the, um, but brought by the Carnegie Foundation to study the race problems, and his his interpretation that in fact racialism is a direct threat to democracy. It's not the, you know, and that's the difference. Wilson sees racialism as the basis of democracy. Right. For for Myrdal and you know increasingly important figures in American liberalism, racism becomes the primary threat to de the democratic tradition, you know, and, 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 and Myrdal's work, right, which re suggests that the, th you know, it's not the presence of black people that threatens American democracy, not their bodies, but rather the racist attitudes of whites is a crucial shift in American uh, ideological understandings of race. Not particularly news, obviously, to the African-American civil rights community who've been making this point for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, great, you know, very much appreciated and uh, makes possible the rise of an interracial movement for civil rights, you know, that had been a very marginal project in 1909 when Du Bois and other black leaders joined with white socialists uh, and, and, and neo-abolitionists to form the NAACP. But with, you know, it's a, it's a tiny organization and they have almost no ability to recruit whites to it, right? But fundamentally different just, just a generation later. Well, the political context was so different by World War II that in 1945, a left-wing slate tied to the communist-aligned Popular Front took over the Philadelphia NAACP in an attempt to create a base among the black working-class masses. And this created a brutal conflict with the sort of middle-class moderate leadership and ultimately to the left's defeat. Where did World War II-era liberals and leftists affiliated with the communist back groups like the National Negro Con Congress, where did they differ on, on civil rights and how did the transition from from World War II and the New Deal era into the Cold War shape the fight over black politics in Philly? 
So I think to answer the question, we actually have to step back a little bit to another aspect of the story that we didn't tell about the 1930s, right, which is the rise of the CIO. And, you know, deeply influenced by, you know, I would argue by, by communist uh, activism in the early 30s, you know, as, as documented by Mark Nason in Harlem and Robin Kelly in, in, in Alabama, but also, you know, embracing anti-communist socialist traditions of trade unionism, liberal traditions of trade unionism. The CIO becomes really the, you know, the most respected force for um, racial change in, in black communities in the late 1930s, bec precisely because, again, it's including black workers in its project. It's, in fact, su suggesting that industrial unionism will only triumph if it is racially, if it's, if it's an interracial movement. So that on the one hand suggests, right, that, that across a line of broad, broad swath of liberalism on the left, there are some common shared principles. And those shared principles include labor rights, but they also include uh, democratic rights for African-Americans. But throughout that history, right, there are real tensions. And there are tensions, you know, over, over everything, over organizational style, over um, st strategy, over relationships to the Soviet Union. I mean, there's just a, you know, a lot of different tensions. And so in that sense, the history of the National Negro Congress, which is becomes the primary vehicle for that, what we come, have come to call the popular front, or that, that sort of CIO-style racial unity for liberal causes, in the late in the late 1930s, it you know it first breaks down when a Philip Randolph, you know, a socialist but anti-communist trade unionist, leaves from the leaves you know denounces the organization, resigns as president of it. In the tensions that are leading up, they're emerging over the European War um, and the role of the Soviet Union there in 39. Reconvenes then after 41, when you know when the Holland Hitler-Stalin Pact collapses and um, the Soviets joined the Allies in the war, which makes, again, revigorates the possibility of those kinds of alliances. And even, I mean, is that all happening? Randolph is leading this, this campaign, the March on Washington movement in 1941. He remains, you know, publicly opposed, but he's quite, you know, he's all, to, to, to alliance with, com with the communist movement. But the local level, much of the March on Washington movement is much more a popular front move. And the demands of that, of that, uh, of that movement, that that F, you know, the, the plan for an all-black march on D.C. and forcing uh, FDR to issue his executive order banning racial discrimination in defense plans, sets the stage there for the kind of coalition politics, but also the kind of protest politics that becomes the kind of characteristic of post-war Popular Front civil rights activism. And at its peak in the period of forty-five and forty-six, there's strong liberal investment in that. Um, and that's where you see these kind of broad coalitions um, in places like Philadelphia that include the NAACP, but also include much more left-wing forces. As quickly as that emerges, it also begins to crumble. And it crumbles, and really, again, because of the Cold War and the, and the post-war politics uh, of empire. And as liberals become more and more squeamish about working with more left-wing forces, in part, because of disagreements over the international situation, disagreements over strategy. Uh, the left is much more interested in mass protest. Liberals would rather work through the electoral system, work, work through elites connecting through uh, kind of advocacy organizations, top-down organizations. But I think more, most fundamentally, it's simply that the left becomes toxic for, for anybody who's not part of it, right? If you're not, um, there's so much anti-communist rhetoric in American society, 
that, it, that those the very alliances that had been crucial to victories and during the war and really after the war become begin to be seen by by non-communist activists as too costly. Um, and there's a kind of movement away. What's interesting to me about that moment, as you point out, right, is that things like the, this left-wing alliance that maintains um, leadership of the Philippine NWCB through the 51, and this is similar kinds of things happen in, in um, some of the local trade unions and places like Detroit and UAW unions, is that within the black community, this left-wing coalition politics remains deeply popular and in fact able to win the arguments within these civil rights organizations as to what's the best approach. Uh, and liberals are the ones, as in the Philippine NWCB, who are forced out because they will not continue to, they won't, they won't participate in this kind of popular front coalition politics for a time, right? Until eventually Cold War anti-communist rhetoric just, just becomes too powerful and those institutions become too powerful. But the second piece that's interesting is that there's huge strategic differences between these two, this, between the, the left wing and the, and the liberals over civil, over civil rights. And there's obviously important ideological differences over, you know, things like capitalism versus communism or socialism. But programmatically, when it comes to achieving racial equity in the United States, they don't they don't really disagree that much. They, they're all in favor of equal employment legislation, so fair employment practices legislation. They're, you know, they're focused on anti-lynching activism um, as a way to deal with the South. And they really don't disagree on program. There are ideological disagreements, and then there are these important strategic differences. You write that racial liberalism with the stigmatization and marginalization of the, the left becomes the dominant force in, in civil rights in the city. You write, quote, this constitutionalist stand that blacks and other racial minorities benefit more from efforts to protect individual rights than from efforts to promote group interests, came to form the core of civil rights liberalism. And you write that this ideology was dominant during the New Deal, I think, both amongst leftists and liberals. Ironically, it framed advancing equal access and rights to private property, homeownership, small businesses, college education. It framed these things as necessary to protect individuals from from capitalism's harms, something very different, you write, from Western Europe's welfare states. How did American political economy, the distinctive, not really a welfare state system built by the New Deal, how did that help shape racial liberalism, a form of anti-racism that was so individualist instead of structural? So I think that right that does takes us into the New Deal and to the particularities of the New Deal's you know most popular program, which is Social Security. And the definition of it, not as a you know pension program delivered, you know through the wealth of the society, but rather as an individual account system in which one is rewarded. You know, one is the taxes that are taken out as one works are are you know metaphorically, not actually, but metaphorically held in some kind of individual account that you can eventually draw on uh, in your retirement. So that's a that's an entirely political justification for a program that is financed just as any other pension program is financed by a state, right? State-based financial pension program. But it generates this idea or it that the way you have social welfare is on the model of individual rights, right? On the model of the Bill of Rights in that sense. That one as an as an individual citizen has a set of rights that the state is bound to protect um, or deliver on. And it, it seems to me very clear that in for liberals in the in the wake of the New Deal and World War II, the way to make the case 
for the use of federal power to, to protect um, civil rights. And, and, and I, I emphasize federal power there because this is, this is the shift here. This is the idea that rather than treating race relations as a local condition that's determined in local communities, which is largely the rhetoric of state rights, states' rights going back to the 19th century, the argument here is that it's the individual's relationship to the federal state as rooted in the Bill of Rights, but as modeled in some ways by the New Deal and by things like Social Security and other kinds of, even the GI Bill, right, which is you get state rights, state resources based on your service to the nation, not based on your, on a kind of universal idea of citizenship, that activists, liberal activists take on both to put themselves in the American tradition, right? So we're not advocating some socialism or something different from the American tradition. We are simply saying, there are some fundamental rights that the federal government, his role is to protect individuals there. Uh, and this is the way to overcome the arguments of, you know, explicitly by southern states, but also in northern communities, that somehow the federal government has no role on these issues, right? These are our local relationships. But it's also, of course, very effective as a way to, and again, there's important similarities to today, right, to make claims for activism and federal action without identifying oneself with this counter socialist, you know, foreign tradition. So given the logic of anti-communism, right, to distinguish oneself from the statist politics of, of Eastern Europe or even Western Europe, right, the argument here is we're not asking for uh, group rights or some kind, something particular, but really simply our citizenship rights as individual American citizens. And that becomes a crucial part of the liberal case. What's interesting to me about that is the ways in which, as, as you said, the, you know, particularly in the trade union movement, leftists also support that idea. And here I think it has to do with uh, a kind of the ways in which you know, the left and trade unions in particular want to emphasize the shared interests of the working class, not the differences, but the, the ethnic and racial differences within the working class. Which thus limits sort of like an analysis of the racialized structure of American capitalism. It's a, well, it, more than limits, it largely yeah. <laughs> it undercuts for the it, left right? as I mean, well for the left as much as liberals, ironically. The, exactly. And so that when in fact I mean we you know, again I I having done some research on the UAW when I was in, uh, earlier, because your continual demand being made by by black members of the UAW for a black member of the of the international UAW International Board. And the response always is, you know, we don't we don't we don't create black seats. <laughs> We're uh, colorblind. We are all we're, we're colorblind, right? And that now there are important counters to this within the left. So I don't mean to say all, the entire left. Sure. Obviously, the black left has different perspective on this, and there are important figures in the white left who, who reject this too. But the dominant position through this period and into you know into the late twentieth century is, you know, that working class organizations should be are colorblind. That's what the goal of racial inclusion requires: is that kind of colorblind focus. And it, and it does mean there's a kind of well, it casts a blind eye to racial internal discrimination and, and inequities within labor movement. It also casts a blind eye to racism among the white working class because you don't have to challenge, you don't challenge people who, uh, as long as they'll tolerate, you know, someplace else, the, the presence of blacks or, or whatever, you don't, you, ne you never have to confront them on their own presumptions of that this is a white, you know, or organization. You know, I don't, you know, the story that the black radicals in the, in the UAW in the late 1960s redefine the, the, the meaning of UAW as you ain't white uh, as a way to 
pointing at, at the kind of institutional racism within the, within the union. It's a really fascinating point because you have both liberals and leftists who have sort of a critique of free market capitalism, different critiques, and a kind of similar critique of racism. And what they both share is that they can't really integrate those critiques or politics. Right. Well, I think that some, in some cases they can. In other cases, they, they really, I think, genuinely believe, right, that Again, as I said, that this if you if you adhere to a certain kind of colorblindness in your anti-racism, then you will reach a point eventually in which you have working class unity across racial lines in which race disappears as a factor. Right. It becomes literally invisible. You know, and, and you know, and I don't mean to I don't mean to imply that there aren't black adherents to that point of view. My own grandparents were deeply committed integrationists who believed that. You know, both not only that their mission in life was to to join white institutions that were liberal and that were committed to an anti-racist agenda, but but to create in their in their in their social lives and cultural lives spaces where um, whites and blacks could come together and unlearn, in effect, the things that divide them. This racial liberalism ideology really becomes the official governing ideology in Philly in 1951 when liberal patrician reformers win a new city charter and win control of city government. It checks Republican the Republican patronage machine. And it also, in the same charter, imposes a ban on racial and religious discrimination in city employment, services, and contracts, and creates a commission on human relations to enforce it. Why did elite good government Democrats in Philly promote racial liberalism as part of a good government anti-machine agenda? And how and how did that good government politics in turn shape civil rights politics in the city? So I think there's two things that were going on for them. You know, both, I mean, and again, there's very prominent black and white liberals advocating this position, right? So one is ideological, that they are, you know, this is long after World War II, right? They have, they are true believers that a democratic society is a racially just society and that the way you build a colorblind social order is not only that you bar, you know, legally bar racial discrimination, but you create opportunities for African-Americans to demonstrate their equality, that, they, that they're no different from the white majority. The breakthrough strategy. Um, and a major focus of that is, get, is the, you know, is um, giving African-American workers their you know, to getting them into new occupations where they've been excluded from or new occupational roles. And then fellow workers and bosses will say, oh, wow, that was dumb of me. Right. This is a perfect, this tell, hey, black people can be tellers or, or but the big deal was <laughs> were the women who, who were the phone operators, right? That right. was a crucial, but also foremen or, you know, I mean, extended all the way, uh, you know, across all different kinds of um uh, status lines, right? Entire job classifications that wouldn't be obvious to us today that were just right. whites only. Yes, exactly. But they also, it was also political, right? In, in the sense that this was what they needed to do in order to get black votes. And black votes were going to be, were essential to, defeat, to ending the Republican patronage machine. So, and this is a case where self-interest matched ideology um, quite directly and matched, frankly, this argument, liberalism's claim to be anti, to be as you know, as, as anti-communist as anybody else, right? In other words, that part of the way to win the Cold War was to demonstrate that the American society could be fully racially integrated, that it could overcome its racial past. To disprove Soviet propaganda. It, yes, exactly. Um, and in fact, to prove 
that it's unlike the right, which was defending racial segregation, it's part of, the, of its Cold War politics, the, that this was a better, more effective Cold War politics right. to pursue racial integration. And it was, you know, they were reformers, but they're gradual reformers, right? So this is this is the other piece of it, right? So through the electoral system, we're going to change the city charter. We're going to be the first city in the nation to have a city charter that bans racial discrimination, not only in employment, but also in contracting, which is crucial and crucial to what happens later. But all of that, you know, this none of this is disruptive to either the local, you know, capitalist marketplace or to the political project of defending democratic capitalism against the Soviet Union, right? We're not tearing anything down. We're not disrupting American society. We're gradually fixing these minor problems that have been, that are left over from an older system, right? And so in that sense, they, they are gradualists. They, they're reformers. It's very technocratic, right? You, you institute a law, you set up a, a government agency, you hire professionals to adjudicate these cases, their commitment is as much to educating employers and workers, white employers, of the fallacy of their racialist thinking, as well as advocating for, for, for black equality, right? And, and so it very much fits within the 50s ethos, the Cold War ethos of, of gradual reform as, not only, as preferable, right? You don't want to do anything disruptive because the top priority has to be to defend democratic capitalism from the social, from the communist challenge. But within that context, liberalism can achieve important reforms that will actually help win that battle. Revealingly, that, that lack of, that lack of disruption causes big problems for racial liberalism's popular appeal. Racial liberalism has this big promise and it, and it really does, it really does deliver to some extent, particularly in opening up public sector work mm-hmm. in Philly, like in other cities, and so building out what becomes a sizable black middle class in Philly. But ultimately, Philly's deeply racialized and unequal economic structure remains in place, and, and the expanding black ghetto in North Philly remained at its core. And the and, and thing is that, that what looks like a contradiction <laughs> is, in fact, I think, the system itself, right? So why do black workers benefit from civil service reform so powerfully? Well, in part, it's because the pageant system was, you know, deeply racialized and this and black voters matter. And so there's a, an appeal for Democrats to, 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 to meet black voters' demands. But they also have, in fact, the reason they have a kind of structural advantage in the civil service system is precisely because they're blocked, they're kept out of the white, out of the private employment system, which is a better paying system, right? So Black workers actually have an educational advantage in competing for civil service jobs versus white workers, precisely because they're you know they're overqualified because they can't get into the private uh, employment structure. Um, and the same thing is true in terms of housing. Why is Philadelphia able to generate a black middle class, and my grandparents included, who bought their house in Germantown in 1944 uh, in a in a in, an, in on a block that had been opened up to black homeowners? It's precisely because whites are leaving, and so. The real estate industry benefits if whites are leaving by blacks moving into these. So it's it's actually the racist, the racialism of the housing market that creates opportunity, just as it's the racialism of the private employment market that creates opportunity for employment in, in, in the government sector. Well, how did that larger systemic and geographic reality of segregation and exclusion, both in terms of, of housing and jobs, how did that ultimately expose the limits of racial liberalism in Philly and lead a growing number of black Philadelphians to become disenchanted with it? 
Well, here I think it's you know the two points we just made: the one, the commitment to gradualism uh, and to non-disruption, and then these structural factors in both employment and housing markets come together on that. Which is to say that one could have imagined uh, a civil rights community that was both you know in these um, not, uh, what we now call NGOs, these nonprofit organizations, as well as in these government agencies that was quite activist, right? Was very committed to to confronting racial inequality in these housing markets and determined to push through very, very quickly. But what instead you get is a system which the Commission on Human Relations is literally called conciliation, right? They literally argue that when we find evidence of racial discrimination in employment, our goal, we're going to go to the employer and educate them and reach an agreement privately to fix the situation. Um, and that notion, and the housing version of it is called neighborhood stabilization. When we have Blacks buying into white neighborhoods and the white neighbors are upset. We're going to literally go and educate the white neighbors that know your property values are not going to be hurt. No, these people don't want to marry your daughters. They literally said <laughs> they don't want to marry your daughters. Um, and we're going to convince them to stay, not to panic sell and not to flee. Now, to the credit of the, com of the Commission on Human Relations professional staff, by the late 50s, even they were admitting neither one of these things was working. But that idea that it's enough to pass the law and then it will use the law will be educational and that you don't have to use strong government action to, to enforce it, creates this incredible contradiction, where by the late 1950s, you know, breakthrough jobs have not led to fundamental change in the, in the employment market, quite the contrary. You know, the, the one breakthrough job doesn't lead to anything else except tokenism. And in housing, um, you know, the system, the white flight is ongoing, and uh, the, the Commission of Relations essentially admits there are no integrated neighborhoods in the city. There are only transitional neighborhoods. And that once the block hits 30 to 40 percent black, there's nothing to be done. And as you can imagine, in some places where particularly where in more working class parts of the city where whites don't know where they're going to go and they're terrified about the, their only asset, a lot of tension that's generated by that. In other areas, you know, people just move on. And, I, you know, I don't want to being in Philadelphia, and I have to acknowledge that there's a there's a there's an exception to that, which is Northwest Philly. Uh, as well as parts of far West Philly overbook and stuff, where at least for a while, white commitment to integration sustains something. But those are the Commission on Human Relations says in the 50s, those are the exceptions that prove the rule. Germantown and West Mount Airy. Exactly. They are the exceptions that prove that, prove that, that rule. And so what you have is a growing understanding in black Philadelphia that these laws uh, and, these, and this agency are, you know, they're not producing. They're not changing day-to-day -day life. They're not – the overall structure of the, of the employment market isn't changing. Um, not only are, are blacks still limited – you know, most working-class blacks still limited to ghettos that are you know, overcrowded, that have uh, exploitative landlords, highly dense in all, um, all these ways. But in fact, the urban renewal program is, is knocking these tenements down. And there's no replacement. There's no housing to replace it. And the same goes for the city's public housing program. Exactly. It's, right. it's reinforcing segregation. So not only can the city not prevent the, the private market actions and systems that are perpetuating segregation, the city's direct actions are perpetuating segregation. Exactly. Right. And what happens in public housing is not only do they give up on the possibility of integrated public housing, or even scattered site public housing, right, where people could live in communities, but rather they, they turn to, as we know, the kind of warehousing of these of these uh, high high rises, modernist high rises. But then, of course, as the as the faith, the possibility of public housing declines, 
resources available to maintain them also decline, right? So they really become warehousing of the poor, of the black poor. You know, uh, whites can find ways out, and 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 you know, and frankly, black families that can figure out how to get out of that do it do the same because they're not they're not um, healthy communities. I feel like what's most remarkable about the, this moment is that even a strong human relations commission, one that let's say was like guillotining offenders in, in set, you know, uh, in front of city hall instead of privately conciliating with them, that even they would have failed spectacularly because you have industrial jobs and white people moving out of the city beyond the reach of the human relations committee commission. And black people are making up an increasing proportion of the population of a shrinking city, 26% by 1960, 34 percent by 1970. And what emerges in Philly and really everywhere was this structural unemployment shaped by intensified segregation as, as you know, as you mentioned, as black people move into neighborhoods on the ghetto's edge and white people quickly move out. And you highlight the situation in Bucks County, which is a Pennsylvania county adjacent to northeast Philly, one of the widest, the widest part of Philadelphia then and now, I believe. And you have U.S. Steel, Philco, Ramen Haas, these major companies all opening plants there. And black people don't live nearby. And not by accident, the massive whites-only suburb of Levittown was built in Bucks County at U.S. Steel's request to provide housing for their workers. So I guess my question is, 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 is a, is a fundamental limit that's exposed at this time that solving these problems at the level of city government is just fundamentally impossible? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, mean, I think one could imagine that the city government would have done a whole lot more. Totally. Um, and, you know, and in fact, you know, the protest movements of the 1960s will force the government to do a whole lot, the city government to do a whole lot more. But yes, I think that's right, that what we see happening is that um, without a commitment to disrupting housing and, and economic mar- and labor markets, right? Disru- and by disrupting, I mean having state intervention in those markets. And liberalism does not have that commitment, right? Liberalism believes, sees its role versus the economy is counter cyclical, right? Its role is to use investment, public investment, to, act, to balance out, to prevent depression and to balance out inequities not to actually direct that economy to be racially equitable or equitable in any other kind of way, right? As long as things, as long as there's prosperity, the assumption is eventually it'll benefit everybody. And so you have, right, this, the, the situation in, in, in Levittown where you have a major U.S. corporation essentially giving land to a major home builder, the Le- you know, who says, I'd love to sell the blacks, but my white market won't allow it. Probably not true, but it was a good line. And and there's no recourse, right? Because the state doesn't have a ban on, on the state of Pennsylvania and the federal and the United States as a whole. Neither have a ban on discrimination in housing at that time. Not till 1968 right? nationally. Not till 1968, right? And um, in six, it's 62 in, in Pennsylvania, but even then, it's so weak it doesn't do any good. And it's still um, weak today. <laughs> right. Well, and 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 then we can see what what what's happened 50 years later. But so yes, I think that's right. That while a more, even more robust commission on human relations that was literally willing to to deny contracts to um, builders or um, you know require as they eventually propose but aren't able to do affirmative action hiring and say in a say uh, employers 
would have made a difference, but it's not going to match the fact that, in fact, most you know the textile industry collapses in the 50s in Philadelphia and moves to the to the non-union South, and these major employers are looking right to move to the suburbs. And this is you know obviously Tom Tom Segrew's work on Detroit is the standard here for both uh, productive human reasons of open space and modernized facilities, but also um, with at at, be, at best total neglect of of how that denies the opportunity. Right to address the racial inequities in their in their own workforce, if if not in fact celebrating the fact that they the way to preserve their all white workforce in the face of growing activism for for equity and employment. Let's move on to the variety of black politics that emerged in Philly with this growing disaffection with racial liberalism. You write, "quote Inspired by the emerging Southern civil rights movement." This new generation of black activists came to believe that only the mass mobilization of black Philadelphia's working class majority could achieve real progress towards racial equality in the city. Ironically, the very same position that the by then discredited left wing faction of the Philadelphia NAACP had taken a decade earlier. How did the explosion of the Southern movement from the 1960 Greensboro sit in at Woolworths onward? How did that provide? such a massive number, really, of alternative models for struggle in the North? And and how did those models fill the growing void left by racial liberalism? So I think what's interesting and what, you know, what what I had no expectation of when I started doing my research is how quickly that the sit-in movement changes the dynamic in the city. I mean, literally in weeks. So the first picketing of Woolworths in Philadelphia is three weeks after the first sit-in, the sit-ins in Greensboro on February 1st. Led by CORE. Led by CORE, yeah. And more importantly, right, the selective patronage, selective patronage movement started by a minister in Philadelphia named Leon Sullivan begins in June of 1960. Um, and the selective patronage, which is um, just a euphemism for boycott, right, um, was premised on the 1930s protest movement that don't buy where you can't work movement uh, against retail stores that wouldn't employ blacks. But it takes that idea and targets employers in the city who are seen as discriminatory. Um, and essentially, it's a workaround, right? They are giving up on the commission human relations precisely because it's unable or unwilling, right, to forcefully prosecute the case against discriminatory employers. And saying, well, if, if if the government, right, the government we elected, if a black votes, in other words, can't produce racial equity in the employment market, what about black dollars? Uh, and so they build a three-year boycott movement, again, called Selective Patronage because they're worried about anti-boycott laws. Starting with Tasty Cake, which is a very Philadelphia first target. Starting, well, not in, you know, and he, and it's, this is the brilliance of this strategy. Tasty Cake is not just a Philadelphia um, beloved snake snack company, but it's particularly important in the black community at the time at the corner groceries all through black neighborhoods, many of which were black owned. And so this is a test, right? This is can we, in fact, unite as a community or put differently, can the leadership of the churches unite the community to actually do something that's, that's painful, right? I mean, in the sense that you, know, you can't send your kid in the middle of the afternoon in the summer to, to buy tasty cake. You're giving up something, right? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't mean to overemphasize that, but you're giving up a convenience. You're, you're actually putting the interest of the whole community over the interest of the guy down the corner who's got a store. 
you're trying to, the goal is to demonstrate that we are united. And so here's the other aspect of it, which is that it's not, this is not an interracial movement. They are not asking whites to do this. They're not trying to get white community. You know, this is this is to demonstrate the power of the black community, the black dollar. Um, this is intra-racial mobilization. Uh, and that's what I think is sort of, is what's interesting and important about the emergence of protest movement in Philadelphia, and I think in other communities in the North which is that, yes, they're deeply inspired by the Southern movement, by the use of nonviolent protest tactics, by the disruption of protest, right? Protest strategies. But there's a different, there are two important differences in the North. One is that, and the more important, more fundamental difference is that instead of trying to get the federal government to intervene on liberal grounds to protect the individual rights of black, of black citizens in the South, they're protesting against those very institutions, liberal institutions in the North, liberal ideas for failing. They're saying, you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. We are either going to, in this case, work around you and use black consumer power. And as we'll see coming next, we're going to directly protest you uh, and, your, and your structures for not doing enough to demand more. And we're going to do that on an, on an intra-racial rather than interracial basis. And implicitly, it becomes more explicit later, I think, that means the whole of the black community, which means the working class majority of the black community. And so it's a very different kind of class politics there, too. Anyway, so it's inspired by the Southern movement, but it understands the North is different. That the context in which they're protesting is very, very different. It's very uncomfortable, right, for that civil rights coalition in the city, right, to suddenly, because <laughs> the, very, the very agencies they built are now the target of protest. And that's uh, a kind of crucial you know, I should. I think it, to make that point, it's probably worthwhile to read what Leon Sullivan um, said at that moment, right? Or we said about that moment that the Philadelphia NAACP was one of the largest in the nation and it did commendable work. In fact, he was a board member for it, but it could not move the giant enterprises, big business, to act on any significant scale. The Urban League was trying with some small success, but in proportion to the conditions, its efforts were negligible. Philadelphia had a commission on human relations, but it seemed helpless. It had no enforcement powers. I wrote to the mayor, but nothing happened. The same for the governor and the president. And to me, all the elements are here, right? The civil rights traditional system isn't working. The government agency designed to enforce this liberal model of racial equity is helpless. And I, when I, you know, and I read that I wrote to the mayor, the governor, and the president. In other words, these people were are supposedly, you know, allied with the black community. They they were we, they were elected with black votes. They're supposed to deliver. And they, and they refuse. You, you write, quote, while not explicitly black nationalist, selective patronage prefigured the black power movement in its emphasis on the power of intra-racial solidarity and in the minister's conscious decision not to seek the aid of white allies. And it does really powerfully prefigure black nationalism. I, I mean, the campaign at the time was really politically capacious. It gets support from the I think, sort of Maoist revolutionary action movement on the one hand, but it's led by Leon Sullivan on the other, whose trajectory is ultimately a really thoroughly capitalist one. He, in 64, he creates the Opportunities Industrialization Center, this this massive operation to train black people in job skills, but also create black-run businesses, including Progress Plaza, a mini mall that still stands today on Broad Street in North Philly, and then a number of businesses, I think, that ultimately failed, including a textile manufacturing operation, a chain of grocery stores, 
and an aerospace subcontractor. You write, quote, Like Booker T. Washington, Sullivan believed that blacks would remain a dependent class until they became owners of property, businesses, and industry within their own community. How did selective patronage, the way it demonstrated the power of black consumers, one, and then two, the power of the ministers to control those consumers, how did that so quickly transition into this huge seminal black capitalism project that was both a model for LBJ's war on poverty and then something embraced by LBJ's Republican successor, Richard Nixon? So that all speaks to the complicated nature of the black nationalist tradition, but also the complicated nature of the movement for desegregation, right? I mean, so the movement for desegregation, both North and South, is organized out of black churches that are essentially black-only institutions. And for Sullivan, there isn't a huge difference between organizing a a consumer boycott campaign out of his all-black church and organizing a black capitalist investment, collaborative investment project out of that same church, which is to say that we tend to think of black nationalism through these um, racially separatist projects, um, whether it's Garveyism or the nation of, nation of Islam. And of course, there was an important wing of black power that was black capitalist, right? So since there isn't a, these kind of bi- binaries don't really, they kind of don't, they don't manifest, they don't, they don't operate well in, a, in black community traditions. If we treat black nationalism in a, in a capacious sense as about institutional autonomy at some level, right, then the black church is a black nationalist organization. Now, some people, will, of course, roll over when I say that, because, of course, they're not nationalists in the sense that they're trying to create their own state. But neither was the Nation of Islam trying to create its own state, right? So there's, there's just these are variants of, of, on this idea. So it was nine, you know, Sullivan's notion of selective patronage was about inclusion in the society, but using black solidarity, in effect, to promote, to push for full inclusion. And again, for him, that's what he was doing with black capitalism as well, using solidarity, using a sense of of our project. And he, he called his chain of convenience stores our markets in order to Win the citizenship rights that 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 have you know and and not not just the you know not just on paper but the full you know promise of American citizenship through uh, through economic activity again in much the same way that Booker T Washington now not unlike Booker T Washington he doesn't eschew political action he will become also a very important supporter of the first black mayor in the city he's a big advocate of black political action but his own focus is on essentially using consumer power and then collective investment power to change the America, to, to buy into American capitalism in a, in a more full way. So again, I think part of it is to not over-dramatize the differences uh, with integ- you know, more integrationist um, strategies, but rather to show that these influences are, are, are kind of overlapping. What is at play here though for Sullivan is a critique of the liberal power structure in the city and its its emphasis not only on gradualism, but its its tendency to focus on again to to be stuck in this breakthrough strategy model, where um, they're you know more excited by middle class achievement and somewhat unfocused, if not just totally ignoring about the realities of working class life. 
Now, and that, you know, that's, so he has the same critique that revolutionary action movement, the Maoist nationalist formation that also is emerging in the city, much smaller, obviously, they have the same critique of liberalism. His solution, right, is to argue that economic action, collective but capitalist, is going is what's going to change the realities of working class life in the city, as opposed to, you know, the radical Maoists argument that the problem is capitalism and we need a revolution to overturn it. You know, in 1963, those differences don't make it, or 1961, they don't make a huge bit of, they're not really that important. Um, they will become, of course, obviously much more important as, 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 as things go on. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get eBooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new eBooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month plus all Verso eBooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. Another huge figure who doesn't fit neatly into these frames was, was Cecil Moore, who led an insurgent slate that took over the city's NAACP in 1962, sort of following the popular front-era leftists in overthrowing the local NAACP's middle-class leadership. He borrowed from the Southern movement's militancy and mass mobilization, but but differed in a, in a lot of ways. You write, quote, Cecil Moore's mass popularity in black Philadelphia's working class communities sprang from his ability to synthesize the NAACP's commitment to institutional desegregation with a black nationalist influenced critique of the civil rights movement's alliance with white liberalism. He really fiercely attacked not only the white liberals, but but very much the, the black professional leadership and was a really provocative order. Um, you write, quote, a local version of Malcolm X, the only black leader in the city unwilling to censor his words and actions to conform to white liberal sensibilities. He called two black elites who he was describing as sellouts, quote, part-time Negroes and Uncle Toms. And he said he was, quote, the goddamned boss. I run a grassroots group, not a cocktail party, tea sipping, 
fashion show attending group of exhibitionists. Moore is just this incredibly consequential, idiosyncratic and powerful figure that who I think it's safe to say most Americans today have never heard of. And yet in Philadelphia is still is still revered in the black community. Um, in fact, if you invoke Cecil, you're you know, you're um, it's a very powerful political move today. You know, the the only person in the civil rights movement who comes that's known more known than who, who he, you know, sort of like him is, is Robert Williams, the NAACP leader in North Carolina who um, rejected nonviolence, called for self-defense, uh, published a book called Negroes with Guns and eventually was driven into exile because of his uh, confrontations with the Ku Klux Klan in North Carolina and then the FBI's intervention there. But Williams, in some ways, is a more conventional liberal than than Moore, right? In the sense that he, you know, he rejects nonviolence, but and 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 Moore, like Williams, in that they're both they both committed to desegregation, and and Moore, in many ways, particularly in the early period when he's most most popular, is not really a national, he's not a nationalist in that sense. Uh, he's an integrationist. He's very proud to be an integrationist. But Moore gets pulled to the left. You know, Williams moves left, and eventually, right, will ends up in in first number um, Algeria, and then Vietnam, and then and then communist China. Whereas Moore never does that. Moore is, in fact, Moore's a Republican. I mean, that's maybe the most important thing to know about it. <laughs> um, he's a military veteran, served in the Marines in the um, late 40s, early 50s. Very much of that generation that, like Williams, had served in, in the armed forces, took seriously the belief that they were fighting for democracy abroad and thought that they had the same right to fight for democracy in it, uh, and to protect, you know, and to use self-defense as a strategy. Uh, at home. And so they really, they see Gandhianism as a kind of betrayal of their Americanness and so, and of, of their rights as men, as male citizens in particular. They see themselves in the tradition of the American Revolution. You know, the right to, 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 to use whatever means that, at their disposal, and this is, you know, obviously sounds, it brings them closer to Malcolm X, right? Whatever means at their disposal to defend their rights as American citizens. I mean, Moore's a capitalist too, like Sullivan, but in a very different way. In the sense that Moore's an entrepreneurial, he's almost like a hustler, right? He puts himself through Temple Law School as a liquor wholesaler, right? He's literally works the city's bars, black bars, selling you know liquor, and that's how he pays his way through evening law school at Temple. Then becomes a criminal defense attorney, uh, which means essentially he right he's protecting hustlers, <laughs> representing people jammed up in North Philly, exactly. Um, and that's his base, as well as other, you know, his, so his, and one of his closest friends throughout all of this is Walter Rosenbaum, a bail bondsman, Jewish bail bondsman. Um, and Moore will say things, and it's always hard with Moore to know what's calculation and what, to, what does he really believe, right? He, part of his criticism of, of liberalism will veer into anti-Semitic language in the 1960s. But it's never clear why, you know, is it, is it for drama's sake? Is it just because it's, you know, here he is with his best friend, right? Um, Work in the city in all kinds of ways, but more so. More like Sullivan comes from West Virginia. I'm not sure what that you know, what the, why that, what that, you know, except for they sort of they like each other because they're both from West Virginia, but they're not. They're from they're sort of outsiders even to the Great Migration in the sense that most Black Philadelphians are coming from Virginia and the Carolinas, maybe Georgia. But so he's you know he's not beholden to any of those pieces, and he's an entrepreneur. And he, but the one thing he hates are Democrats <laughs> because the Democratic Party is the party of segregation in his mind. He politically, right, that he comes from a world in which there is this imagined idea, right, that the Republicans could, in fact, become the party of civil rights. There's no reason they shouldn't. They're the party of Lincoln, right? 
And in that sense, the party of small business ought to be the party of civil rights. And I think that's where Moore is. And he actually runs for Congress as a Republican in the 1950s. But he eventually, right, he's also, you know, part of NAACP. And he's very critical, again, beginning in the 1950s. And this is, this is, you know, again, because the NAACP leadership has also become very close to black leadership of the Democratic Party. So they all become kind of one thing. And it's all to him about a kind of middle class, respectable, and what we've come to call respectability politics, so that he wouldn't have used that language. But this ethos that's more about creating opportunities for the best of us, right, the talented tenth in essence strategy, and not about delivering real change on the streets of, you know, on his streets, on the communities in North Philadelphia, uh, West Philadelphia, where working class lives are laid out. So again, like Sullivan, he uh, is critical of liberalism for failing to deliver real change to, to the majority. But whereas Sullivan is, in fact, a, me a member in great standing of the um, professional elite in town, Moore eschews, you know, and he's a lawyer, he could be, he eschews all connection to that. Right? He's as proud of the fact that he spends his Saturday nights walking up and down Broad Street from North Philly to South Philly, drinking and hanging out on the corner with folks and not going to cocktail parties and not sipping tea like those and for Phil people who know Philadelphia geography like those professional liberals on Lincoln Avenue in, in, in Northwest Philly. He didn't go to cocktail parties, but he could drink. Oh, could he drink? And he know and he dressed better than anybody else in town because he wears he wore silk suits every single day. So what he constructs, and again, it's never completely clear with Cecil how much this is intent or how much is this is kind of improvisation. But he, um, once he gets the presidency, and he reaches the third time he runs of the NAACP, he is determined to bring both the protest politics of the South, but this class resentment at interracial liberalism, at the kind of, at what he sees, right, as this black leadership's more, more, being more interested in making nice to the powerful in the city than in, in pushing for real change for the working class majority. And, it, you know, it, the timing is is quite interesting, right? It's at the same point that Malcolm X is not only mobilizing this kind of critique as well, but also beginning to be frustrated at the Nation of Islam's unwillingness to, to engage in civil rights activism. And we see all these other elements within the civil rights movement beginning to express frustration with both nonviolence and interracialism. And Malcolm X is a huge figure in Philly in particular. He's the minister at Philadelphia's mosque for quite a while. In the 1950s. Um, and so by, by this period, he's not, he's not there on a consistent basis. But yes, there are very, I mean, the Nation of Islam is very growing in the city. You know, and what we know now, and I think it was harder to understand at the time, the tensions within between increasingly militant wing of the nation determined to um, bring this ethos of racial solidarity and self-defense into contact with the larger black community and a kind of older leadership that, you know, was um, both more religious or millennial oriented, but also much more cautious about the power of the state to disrupt what they were trying to do, um, is at play inside the nation of Islam as well, and quite well understood, I think, uh, in the city. So more is he is picking up on a certain ethos. So even though he's never eschews ever in his career, and this goes into this commitment to desegregation and to racial inclusion, he begins to, to take advantage of this frustration with lib not just with liberalism, 
but also with black middle class integrationism to build this very powerful base of support in black Philadelphia, in black working class Philadelphia, that and to use that for it to build a protest movement against uh, employment discrimination uh, uh, and education discrimination primarily. Yeah. So he is, despite all of these critiques of the liberal integrationist leadership, he remains deeply committed to to desegregation. His first big campaign in 1963 targets the racially exclusionary building trades, which is a fight to stop the construction of a public school in the heart of North Philly, in the, in the Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, um, demanding that more black workers be hired. Because these are these were publicly funded projects providing good-paying union blue-collar jobs that almost entirely went, and really to a somewhat only somewhat lesser degree, I think, continue to go to white carpenters, electricians, steam fitters, etc., and more use these militant, old-school labor union-style picket lines, not the sort of demure picket lines we see today, but picket lines that directly, physically confronted white workers and police. And it's a fascinating campaign, in part because of of the strategic wisdom of, of, of choosing a target in the heart of black North Philly. And then also because he, the NAACP targets these racially exclusionary labor unions. And in so doing, I think really goes after like a core contradiction of, of the new deal coalition. Well, that's right. And that, and that's the point, right? Is that he's, he was not critiquing the goals of integration, but rather the institutions that were claiming to be working towards integration and failing. Um, and that, I think, is what you know, that's the ethos of the moment that he really captures. And, you know, I just just sort of quick background here. So the Commission of Human Relations, the city charter bans discrimination, not only in, in employment, but in city contracts in 1951. 1953, the Commission on Human Relations announces it's investigating racial discrimination in the construction industry. The federal government also has a on paper an executive order banning discrimination in all construction contracting. And yet in the city of Philadelphia, the major construction unions are lily white. There was one black electrician in the union as late as the late 1950s or 1960s, the electrician's union, none in the roofers union, none in the steam fitters unions. The only strong presence of black workers in construction was in the laborers union, the day laborers, which is unskilled, you know, the unskilled levels. In 1963, right at the beginning of this demonstration, the head of the Commission on Human Relations, in effect, what they say is the lack of, we finally are ready to say that the lack of black workers on these sites is evidence of Negro exclusion. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is the problem they have, right, which is it takes them 10 years to investigate and to be willing to say this, to this announce this thing that is, you know, a reality in everyday life for, for black people in the city. Everybody knows this. Because they're looking for a smoking gun of someone using the N-word and saying that's, we're not hiring you because you're black, basically. Right. And so since the unions don't actually have a, a, a thing in their bylaws that says we don't take blacks, what, but what they have is a thing that says we don't take, you have to complete our apprenticeship program to be part of our union. The apprenticeship programs are federally funded, run by the Philadelphia public school system, and they're all blocking, there's no blacks in them for these major construction unions. But they, they think that somehow if they do an investigation, they'll, they'll convince these unions to change. And it's only after 10 years they finally give up on that possibility. But by then it's way too late, right? And so... When Moore comes along and says, look, they're not only are they building are they are they have these contracts that are were excluded from to, for really good working class jobs. We can't get these jobs, but they have the gall to build a school in our neighborhood 
that's going to be an all-black school because of where they're putting it. And actually, you're choosing locations for schools that are ensuring segregation in the school system, and they won't even let us build. We won't even let us work there. But the moment, this moment, which you know, one of the laborers says, "How it is, must be a false democracy if we can't get jobs building schools for our own kids." And so when he announces these demonstrations, and as you say, these are picket lines that are designed to, and they challenge, they challenge these union workers, will you cross the picket line? And they also block supplies from being delivered. I mean, it is, it is, uh, and this is, this is May of 1963. So it's the same month as the, as the Birmingham protest with the, with the fire hoses and the, and the dogs, the same time in Philadelphia, they literally shut down the city in effect with the demonstrations because they there's so much mobilization. There's a parallel mobilization at the municipal service building. Right. And then, right. And so they're building also this downtown building and there's just similar demonstrations there. And what is extraordinary, right, is that they, they you know, obviously they blame the unions, they blame the contractors, but the primary target of the demonstrations is the Commission on Human Relations and, and the city government and the failure to enforce its own policies. And, you know, by this point, the commission is saying, yes, we agree. <laughs> in essence, we need affirmative action. We need it's not enough to ban discrimination. We need more than that to, if we're going to change the, the, the labor force. But they are either unwilling and eventually they actually the head of the commission will resign at this moment because he says the mayor won't back him. Um, they don't have the power to force these powerful constituencies, the all white constituencies in, the, in, the, in that same New Deal coalition, the trade unions, to force them to change their policies. But, but what Moore's NAACP ultimately wins isn't so impressive either. And, no. and, the, and the story you tell here is a, is a tragic one about the breakdown in the New Deal coalition. You write, quote, to poor blacks, white working class Catholics and Jewish and white Protestant professionals and business people alike, the city's liberal democratic coalition promised economic prosperity and a decline in social conflict. It is the paradox and ultimate tragedy of the 1963 protests that both sides would come to believe that they had lost. From that point on, Democratic politicians in Philadelphia would find it nearly impossible to find satisfactory compromise between the competing interests of their black and white constituencies. And you write that it wasn't just about optimism, about improving race relations, but really maybe more importantly, this more general and pervasive post-war optimism about growth and affluence. And we always think about that optimism shifting into this pervasive pessimism and sense of scarcity in the 1970s. But what your book and other books like it really show is that it really was in the 50s and 60s that the feeling that one slice of a shrinking pie needed to be defended, that that's when it emerged so powerfully in cities like Philly. So my question is, what does this conflict reveal about how black struggle and white racist reaction, how they both emerged within this seemingly zero-sum context of a city in decline? Because it seems as though, tragically, their interests really had become structurally opposed to one another because construction jobs on publicly funded projects were really some of the last good pieces of a shrinking urban pie. So, yes, that, that's exactly right. But I think also there's the, the part of the problem is, in, is an ideological one in white communities that is older than that moment. Right. right. So it goes back to the 1940s and, and to the 1930s. And to 1917, like we discussed at the top. Right. But but, but, but it's not just racism, which is, also, you know, goes back a long way. But but this notion that my rights include the right to white only spaces. 
right? My right to, I built this union. It has apprenticeship rules. Yeah, those apprenticeship rules favor my children, but that's as it should be. I bought a house in this in this all white neighborhood or suburb. I earned that, right? And so this whole ideology that I worked for this, this wasn't given to me by the state. I worked for this becomes a defense for have not sharing it. And that that's true. And, and, and that's one thing in moments of prosperity or in places of prosperity. What happens in a place like Philadelphia, where, right, the, the, the transition to from an industrial to a, to a service economy or a finance economy um, begins um, in the late 19, in the early 1950s, really, with the close of the Korean War and the departure of the of the textile plants, is that you said it well. It's a zero sum game. There are only so many crumbs that one can get, and most of those crumbs are from the state, right? That, and that's the thing about the contracting system, right? Which is that this, you know, the ideology says this is free enterprise. The reality is that the construction jobs, the growth industries, finance, insurance, real estate, these are all bound up in the state and state regulation. And if you're going to, you know, you have to, political power is what delivers the, that opportunity. What delivers the opportunity to have the to work as a union electrician instead of at McDonald's. Exactly. And whereas the promise to black workers from political power is, is racial equity and equal opportunity, the less less explicit but deeply understood promise to the white trade unionist white working class communities in the city is you earned yours you can keep it and the way you keep it is through political power right and so and this is what the construction protest and and before that the long and and ineffectual history of the community commission on human relations revealed right is that it's not a tech this is not a technocratic liberalism government that's fulfilling its promises. This is about ethnic politics and, uh, and racial politics and about the power to protect your community. And it's very clear that the Democratic Party, the power lay with the traditional working class elements of that of that party, not the liberal biracial middle class power. Right. And that comes to a head. In 1963, in the mayoral election, which, which happens right before the protest, right, which is the pro- Democratic primary in April, when uh, having had two technocratic mayors, Dilworth, the mayor at the time, has, has resigned um, to, run, to run for governor ran earlier, resigned to run for governor a year earlier, and the sitting mayor, the first city's first Irish Catholic mayor, which is pretty amazing about Philadelphia, is you know much comes out of his ward-based working-class politics. Mayor Tate. Mayor Tate, James Tate, and he clobbers Walter Phillips, the liberal candidate in that election, um, will go on to be mayor. And that's the moment in which, in essence, the fig leaf of middle class liberalism is removed from the Philadelphia Democratic Party machine. And what we see is that where the power really lies is in um, these forces that are uh, in defense of white privilege and white and white white control over those (laughs) over that pie. The key figure in that reaction in retrospect, is is not Tate. It's it's Frank Rizzo, who, at in the early '60s, at the time of the 1964 North Philly riot, is the deputy commissioner of police. He he led cops on the street during the riot, and as you write, Rizzo quickly quote became the focus of black anger about the persistence of racial inequities in the city, and simultaneously emerged as the key figure in the resurgence of a racialist politics in Philadelphia's white working-class neighborhoods that demonized black activism as the main threat 
to the local social order. It it pains me to ask you to summarize so much in a couple questions because I could really <laughs> and will probably one day do an entire show on Rizzo. But, you know, he was named police commissioner in 67 by Tate um, as Tate sought to win over white ethnics moving right against a Republican challenger, Republican challenge from the law and order Republican DA, who was Arlen Specter. He then becomes the iconic figure of white urban working class reaction when he's elected Philly mayor from 72 to 80. But explain Rizzo, his rise and how how Philly politics emerging out of this collapsing New Deal, New Deal order, how they all how it all polarizes around him. So, you know, Frank Rizzo, right, is a product of the intersection of this working class patronage politics in the city and and the police. His father was in the police. And the way, you know, this is from an era going back into, you know, his father in the 1930s was a police officer. That goes back into the era of Republican patronage, where you had to be a Republican to get into the police force. The police force was dominated by the Irish, and Italians felt discriminated against within it. And that's the context in which Rizzo emerges. And I had black politicians tell me Rizzo hated the Irish much more than they hated blacks. I think that's not true. I think Rizzo was deeply racist. But it reflects the kind of complicated ethnic politics that, that's going on in, in this period of time. By the early 1950s, as Rizzo is rising through the ranks and becoming a precinct commander, he is notorious in black Philadelphia for his violence and racism. He's known as the Cisco Kid because of the kinds of police brutality he carries out and his, his people who, who support him do. He is well known and, and detested in black Philadelphia from very early on. What happens in the 60s, though, is this, is this, you know, he rises from being a kind of mid-level figure to first someone beloved uh, as the defender of the rank and file patrolmen, um, these uh, Irish and Italian and other ethnic groups, white patrolmen who feel abandoned um, by this leadership, the liberal leadership of the city, and then eventually to their communities more broadly. How that happens reflects you know, a broad history about about the police in our, and that, that we're seeing, you know, carried out here in the summer of 2020, which is that the rank and file has very little culturally in common with the reform management of the police of these police departments and that it becomes a kind of a culture, you know, and not just some of the kind of cultures of the unionism that, that played here that believes in its in its way of doing things. And it's the kinds of uh, forms of solidarity it builds. Only this is solidarity built around use of violence, the ability, you know, the, the, the dangers of black communities, the need to use uh, violence against them, and the sense that, you know, either you support our prerogatives and our commitment to control, or you're against us. And, you know, Philadelphia is the home, the birthplace of the, of the fraternal order of police, one of the most vitriolic, conservative, and I would say proto-fascist of the police unions. Lodge uh, five. And Rizzo is becomes the hero of that kind of rank and file police unionism as he moves up through the ranks. The first kind of key moment when that happens is the North Philadelphia Rebellion of 1964, which is a rebellion, black rebellion against police brutality. Police brutality in, in ways that I think I don't actually I think the, if I were to rewrite my book, I would pay more attention to this. That going through the 40s and 50s, the other issue that's dominant in black working class communities is police brutality. And it- well, you write about Moore's campaign at to desegregate Gerard 
college, which which you know we don't have time to get in a lot of detail about. But you but you do write that that is even though it's about desegregating this home for fatherless boys in the heart of North Philly, what it's really kind of about is about confrontation That's with right. police. That's right. And that and it's in that sense a direct result of the North Philadelphia Rebellion of '64 a year earlier. But if you go even back earlier than that, right? you know, throughout the 50s, periodically, right? It's the mass meeting to protest the latest thing that they did, the police did, the latest atrocity. Um, and that goes through, right? In the summer of 63, Moore leads a campaign to put criminal defense attorneys in all the police precincts in North Philadelphia to try to, pre- literally to try to prevent a riot because he's so concerned about the ways in which the police are becoming so aggressive in, in black communities. And then what happens in the summer of, of, of 1964, the very same weekend, that in Atlantic City, you know, an hour and 15 minutes from Philadelphia, the Democratic National Convention is collapsing, or you know, over the, the demands of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the testimony of Fannie Lou Hamer. That very same weekend, um, there's a confrontation between a couple, a woman's pregnant, and the police, and the rumor shoots through the black community, sent hard everyone in Philadelphia, that the cops have killed a pregnant woman. Uh, it's not true, she turns out to be fine, but it's totally believable. And there are three days of rioting and that are targeted, you know, at two forces, the police and white, primarily Jewish owned businesses in North Philadelphia that are seen as exploitative. It's a long story. I'll I'll try to skip over pieces of it. But Philadelphia's police commissioner at the time, Leary, uh, who will short who based on this will go on to be the commissioner in New York City months later. Right. Does a kind of liberal approach to this kind of seeks to protect lives. He abandons property. He withhold, he restrains the police. This is partly why it goes on for three days. And the police, the rank and file police are furious. Um, and the only person out there with them in their minds telling them it's, you know, this is terrible that, that you're being restrained in these ways is Deputy Commissioner Rizzo. Um, and he begins to develop this kind of folk hero status as a result of that. He never gets too far up in the hierarchy to go out with his billy club and crack heads. And he right. And he's he's always remains, you know, he is his loyalty is to the rank and file, not to the politicians who are appointing the top figures. And the irony is that he uses that to actually get appointed the top figure. And, and but before I tell that piece of the story, let me just point out the other thing that happens in the rebellion. Right. Is that people are people who are angry are, you know, they're angry at everybody, including the civil rights leadership. Even civil Eastle Moore gets attacked. Right. So he's rushes back from Atlantic City tries to calm people, and they start chanting, we don't need no Cecil Moore. We got this under ourselves. And Moore, unlike all the rest of them, including Sullivan, is, is nothing but his pulse on the, on the, on his finger on the pulse, so that a day later, he's now attacking liberals for their failure around the, around the, around the rebellion and taking up the cause of the rebellion. And so in that sense, he's not a new figure. He gets, but, he, but he and Rizzo both are lifted up in many ways by the rebellion and by the way they respond after the rebellion. And that's what leads directly to the confrontation at Gerard College a year later. But most importantly to Rizzo's career is what happens in 1967, uh, now at the height of black power, when this coalition of of, uh, black power activists, which Moore has a kind of minor role in, builds a citywide black student movement to demand um, more black teachers to black to black history courses, a change in the dress code so that they can wear African themed clothes, 
a whole series of changes to black high schools and organizes a citywide march on the school board in Center City, which is all managed. There's a whole set of negotiations with the liberal school superintendent that are taking place. They have their representatives up in the Board of Education and everything up. seems to be going well. When the leaders show up, they, they're invited inside for negotiations. They're about there. They actually one of the leaders, one of the high school students leans out the window and said they've agreed to 10 of 11 or 11 of 12 of our demands. We're, you know, we'll be right back with a full announcement. And then in that interim period, Rizzo shows up, still deputy commissioner, shows up with a new class of rookie police officer that he's just just deputized at City Hall just 10 blocks away. There's one kid jumping on a car, and he uses that to initiate essentially a police riot on these high school students in which he's caught on tapes with his bully pulled, screaming, get their black asses. And the result is this extraordinary political moment in which the black deputy mayor, a man named Charles Bowser, believes he's convinced the mayor, Tate, to fire Rizzo for doing this. But then Tate's out of town on vacation in Florida or something. But before Tate can get himself organized to get back to town to do that, there's a campaign organized. The switchboard at City Hall lights up and it's just call after call. Um, demanding not only that Rizzo's job be saved, but that he, you know, he'd be promoted and that he is the defender of of law and order and racial calm in the city. Tate had already promoted, had just promoted Rizzo to commissioner before the election, which was that fall, um, in order to get reelected against Spectre, as you said. And he thinks he can get rid of Rizzo now that he's been reelected. But this city hall switchboard thing, he backs off. And four years later, Rizzo will be elected mayor on a conservative backlash platform. Moving on to to Black Power, which there's so many different organizations involved in your book. So like it, it emerges in Philly through this confluence of organizations and figures. SNCC, which, you know, was the Southern, one of the major organizations of the Southern movement in 65, establishes an office in Philly and creates the Philadelphia Freedom Organization modeled on Alabama's Lowndes County Freedom Organization. There's this Nation of Islam-influenced SNCC veteran named John Churchville, who opens a freedom library, emphasizing black pride in education. There's the Northern Student Movement, which was founded by your father, Peter Countryman, a, a white man, and where your mother, Joan Countryman, a black woman, also worked. There's North Philly's Church of the Advocate. There are all of these figures and institutions that ultimately lead to the rise of black power in Philly and particularly to the black people's unity movement. How did black power politics and BPUM emerge in Philly? And and how did they position themselves vis-a-vis the rest of the city's black political scene? So there's, I think, two things that are important about going on that you've, that you've laid out that are less about all the organizations, right, and more about the kind of group of people here, which is that it's a, this is a very much a youth politics, very influenced by the militancy and fearlessness of the Southern movement, and but also its emphasis on black leadership and on this idea of, of building, again, new kinds of leaders, not relying on the old, on the middle class, middle age, traditional leadership, but identifying new forms of leadership in black neighborhoods, you know, in ways that are kind of simultaneous, right? You have the Southern organization, Southern movement and SNCC, the Southern organization, beginning to kind of pull away from interracialism and question it and look for alternatives to it. 
And that kind of conforms to at the same time among young activists, some who come out of that tradition and others who have who are kind of much more steeped in the black, black nationalist street, street tradition. People who were like a man named Walter Palmer, who are very influenced by the nation of Islam's black nationalism, but not by its religious faith. Right? They're not drawn to it, to the to, 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 to the nation of Islam's version of, of, of Islam nor to its kind of puritanical emphasis on clean living and, um, you know, rigid gender, gender roles, et cetera. And these two kind of forces come together. They literally come together when John Churchville invites Walter Palmer to his, to his library, and they begin a discussion group about the problems of, of, of interracialism and of nonviolence and how to solve, how to, how to move the movement to the next stage. And that's what leads directly to the Black People's Unity Movement being formed, BPOM, um, which was influenced in some ways also by a kind of internationalist sense. And they were they they um, were very influenced by the, the emerging black nations of Africa, right? The independent nations of Africa and the notion of African unity. And obviously their use of the word black was also a break, an early break from uh, in terms of language. Um, Palmer had always was a kind of organic intellectual from West Philadelphia who had been involved in efforts to and critiques of Negro of the use of the word uh, Negro that go back to the late 1950s, um, and again this emphasis on Black history and, and those kinds of things. And so it all sort of comes together first in in, in BPOM and then SNCC's organization, the Philadelphia Freedom Organization, and uh, actually the, the the city's core chapter also makes this transition from being an integrationist, nonviolent organization to a primarily uh, Black Power organization, all in the same period. But interestingly, and I think this is, you know, it, it actually all predates the summer of 66 in many ways, the origins of this or is simultaneous with it. And, you know, it, and, it, you know, there's, again, a tendency to say, well, when Stokely Carmichael calls for black power in the march across Mississippi, this starts everything. Well, I think actually, no, it doesn't start everything. It just kind of reveals it to the world what's been happening really in, in, in black communities since since um, 1963. And the other piece of it, of course, is that is the is the impact of first um, Malcolm X's um, being forced out of the nation Islam and then his assassination because it you know the, as a martyr Malcolm X becomes the model for an alternative form of uh, black political activism and leadership and that's very much so you don't have a kind of organizational link um, but you have a kind of ideological and philosophical link there and so that particularly this idea of community control that that, that Malcolm X had been promoting the idea. The goal shouldn't be to integrate ourselves into white neighborhoods and white institutions, but rather to take political and institutional control over our own communities. Right? We're not trying to leave. We're not trying to leave the ghetto. We're trying to control it. We should control its politicians, its social welfare organizations, its businesses. Uh, this is our community. We should strengthen it. Um, and that's that's sort of a cru the crucial thing that links all these folks. That the sense that What's wrong with our schools? There's nothing wrong with our schools. We should just run them. And we, if we run them, instead of letting it be controlled by the white power structure, we will turn them into good schools. And that's crucial to Churchville's ideas in the, in the Freedom Library, becomes a kind of key piece for, for all of the, the organizations I discuss in the book is this idea of community control. And it eventually will lead to not for, you know, a lot of, at least a lot of things. And there are radicals, there are, there are important anti-capitalists, as I said, there's forms of black capitalism. But in Philadelphia, um, it also is a direct line to the emergence of black elected officials in the 1970s. 
in which they essentially say the Democratic Party itself, as it exists in black communities, is uh, an institution that we're going to take over and control. Through the Black Political Forum, which is which is founded in 68 and wins first state legislative races, city council, Congress, and then finally in 83, the mayor's office with Wilson Good's election. How did the Black Political Forum draw on the Black Power tradition, which had, had a lot of problems in Philly in its few years of existence, the breakdown of the Black Coalition, which just becomes sort of dependent on you know, the very richest institutions in Philadelphia and, and falls apart to, to more radical efforts, which encounter the, the reality that prizing intra-racial unity above all else doesn't work when it turns out everyone has extreme ideological differences. How does the Black Political Forum draw on the broader Black power scene, and, and how did it hope to end what, they, what it called plantation politics in Philly? Well, let me, let me say two things first here. One is the other thing, of course, that the more radical forms are up against is state is state repression, right? And uh, and as from the very beginnings, from Rizzo's you know, cops in particular, Rizzo's cops, right? And so from the very beginning, like the Philadelphia Freedom Organization, the SNCC organization, which is uh, wants to be a third party in the city, and you know, it turns out they're sort of naive about how third parties work, and they don't really understand the machine. But by God, the police understand that they're a threat, right? And so here they are trying to build a political party, operate within the American political system, but have an all-black political party. And not only are they harassed on a daily basis by cops, some of them masquerading as taxicab drivers, but eventually they try to frame them um, with a- For, for hoarding dynamite, for to, to, to bomb what? Bomb City Hall, uh, they claim, wow. right? Um, and it's, you know, and they're eventually forced out of town because- And they get totally, and the cop's case gets totally credulously covered in the media. Exactly, even though, you know- it, once it hits the courts, it's thrown out almost instantly because it's clearly they don't even have ignition caps for the dynamite. It's so clearly a plant um, using, again, all the tactics we'll see with COINTELPRO. They they find a guy who's got a criminal problem. They convince him to join the organization. He shows up claiming he's got this dynamite. <laughs> and then before they can even get rid of the dynamite, they arrest them all. Right. So that's that's the other piece of it. But so the, and the Panthers are brutally repressed. Brutally repressed in Philadelphia. They come late to Philadelphia and they, and they are brutally repressed in the city. In contrast, the black political forum and the politicians it begins to organize are not, they want to operate within the Democratic Party structure. And their argument is essentially they use the primary system to attack what they call plantation politics the idea that, that the only way to get elected is to get the approval of uh, the Democratic Party organization, which is called the, the city committee. And that's all white. That's white dominated. So all of the black politicians, they've, you know, by this point, most of the black majority state house districts, the city council areas have black politicians in them uh, or, or in the process of that. But they're, you know, they're determined who runs, who gets in those positions is determined by the, the Democratic Party organization. So starting with Hardy Williams, who runs for state house um, in West Philadelphia in 1968. They build uh, an organization committed to running insurgent campaigns in the primaries, to developing the skill sets to win those campaigns. Right. So it's from the very beginning. This is this is not third party kind of running for political office to to make a to make an ideological point or to advance a political campaign. These are hard nosed campaigns to win office, to win representation, and eventually the idea is to win state power. Right. And and um, Wilson Good, who will become is, the, is, is, as I remember, the, the campaign manager for Hardy Williams' first campaign, um, 
and you know they they have a they have a, a, a platform that talks about a new kind of youth politics they want to address gang rising gang problem through social services and through a kind of a mentorship system they they you know they they have a kind of very left liberal borderline social democratic politics um which they you know that that's going to be again oriented towards the needs of black communities um but very much within that spirit of community control that we're not trying to integrate into white institutions we're trying to deliver services to our black communities more effectively and we want to be held accountable by those communities and Wilson Good will say in the early 1970s that, that what we are seeking is community control over the Democratic Party infrastructure. And eventually he will, he and his and, and, and the other members of the Black Political Forum will advance that that strategy, that politics, to the point where, where Wilson Good is the consensus candidate to be the first black mayor in the city in 1983. Yeah. So this ultimately all adds up to what became Philly's black political establishment. Mm-hmm. Wilson Good elected as Philly's first black mayor who then presides over the move bombing two members of the storied Fatah family in recent years ending up in prison for corruption black independent leader Hardy Williams son state senator Anthony Williams finding himself aligned with corporate ed reformers congressman Lucian Blackwell's widow former councilwoman Janie Blackwell recently defeated by a black progressive did the black political forum just become ultimately co-administrators of the same if more diverse machine so you'll you'll actually be to know that's the book I'm working on now. <laughs> not, oh, not, cool! <laughs> not about Philadelphia solely, but rather about that whole idea of, from Gary from Gary, from Gary on. and and Cleveland on. Yes, the idea that of using black municipal power and taking com- as as a form of community control, right? And the idea that if we control these institutions of growth liberalism, right, this, these publicly funded. Uh, counter cyclical institutions, and we can then intervene um, using those levers of power in in ways that will, in fact, advance the the economic needs of the black working class. Right, that is the sort of central premise of what comes called black independent politics within a democratic party. And part of my argument is that they'd already decided, you know, that that was the way to root before the Gary Convention, and so the Gary Convention's doomed from the beginning as <laughs> not a kind of more aggressive, independent into black power politics. But that this this is, in fact, the most coherent version of social democracy that we see emerge in, in the country in the 1970s. And sort of nationally reaches its apotheosis with Jackson in the 80s. Well, see, the Jackson story is part of, I mean, obviously, so Goods elected in 83 and Jackson runs in 84, right? So there's a connection there. What's happened, all, in a, and of course, Harold Washington's elected mayor of Chicago in 83 as well. But that by that point, the problem is already clear, which is that, of course, the party has the country has moved to the right. Social the possibilities that they saw in the 70s for social democracy are collapsing around them. Whereas so that even so good, you know, part of, you know, so the story about good is mostly about move and, and, and about his inability to control a racist police force. And I think that's a you know, it's a tragic and horrifying um, story, um, which of which he is both complicit and victim, I would argue. But. In some ways, his crisis is much deeper, right? The crisis is that he does not have the, t- the tools or the resources to implement the social democratic agenda he's promised for the city. He can't tax Montgomery County. He, he can't tax Montgomery County. He, he you know, the, the wage tax in the city is driving out jobs. He can't. And the, and the federal government, which, right, was the central premise of this idea of community control, whether it's Coleman Young, sort of traditional liberal or Richard Hatcher, the much more black power influenced mayor of Gary, 
uh, or Marion Barry, the SNCC veteran in, in Washington, D.C., all came to power on the idea that we can build a, we can skip state governments and build a direct alliance with the liberal federal government and control the resources that come into our city and deliver in ways that the white plantation oriented racist system had had denied us right in those very struggles over construction jobs and other things but instead it's not that's not who you're negotiating with you're negotiating now with not with first with Jimmy Carter who abandons growth pot liberalism um, halfway through his first term and then with Ronald Reagan's entrenchment Harold Washington and Jesse Jackson in ways much more explicitly than Wilson good run campaigns designed to restore that old order the old New Deal order the deep irony, right, that black politics becomes this, the last defenders of that old New Deal order. David Dinkins, I would argue, and I do will in this book, attempts in essence to figure out how to build social democracy in one city without the federal government. And of course, he runs into the neoliberalism of and the racism of Rudy Giuliani and only lasts one term. But this is the kind of tragedy of black ur urban politics, which is that its whole premise that it was going to negotiate with a white liberal New Deal state for power, it never gets to do because that state disappears in the, in the face of conservative anti-tax and resurgent racist politics. And that to me is the fact that we can name all these forms of corruption or kind of entrenched do nothing <laughs> politics in which race, racial representation replaces social change, right? This is the ultimate tragedy. Black politics emerge out of the movements of the 1960s but eventually become calcified into this idea that I represent you and deliver what, you know, patronage in essence, right? And, and that's all, I, that's my sole responsibility. And you should celebrate that I've done that. You write, quote, It strikes me as historical wishful thinking to expect the advocates of Black independent politics to have foreseen the massive rightward shift in national politics that would begin in the late 70s. And the same is really true for, for social movements in, in Philly, too, you write some really fascinating stuff about the Philadelphia Welfare Rights Organization, part of the National Welfare Rights Organization that was nationally led by by George Wiley, and which is you know famously written about by by Francis Fox Piven. But in Philly, it was led by this really remarkable figure named Roxanne Jones, and they won huge gains in enrollment and benefits, like shifting hundreds of millions of dollars, if I remember correctly into the pockets of poor black women in Philadelphia um, and throughout the state. Up until Republican Governor Raymond Schaefer, Raymond Schaefer slashes payments in 1970. And then again, I think, I don't recall, perhaps more dramatically, under Republican Governor Richard Thornburg, again in the 80s. So were black freedom organizations similar in a similar situation, basically the same situation as, as the rising black political class in terms of them being founded in response to and amid the contradictions of the New Deal order, and so inevitably incapable of confronting the new right in power? And, and even if it was inevitable, as I think you suggest, what lessons might be learned today on the left in general and for black organizers in particular? You know, first of all, well, so one thing to say is the, the, the danger in, in that framing, I'll admit, is that it doesn't really follow the efforts to maintain a kind of progressive social movement that was in kind of a tension with, with electoral, liberal electoral politics or black electoral politics through the 70s into the 80s. And there's actually a book coming in the next couple of years by Austin McCoy that will addresses that very issue in, in Detroit, Cleveland, and Chicago. 
And so, it, you know, particularly in the context of, de of, of the 70s economic crisis and deindustrialization, to say that they didn't succeed is not to say they didn't try, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So there are really interesting experiments with trying to figure out how to, how to maintain a movement politics with the kind of notions of social transformation and, ra and, and racial and economic equity in a, in a very different economic context. The second thing to say is though that I wrote those things, and I'll say, I admit this, right? I wrote those before Barack Obama was elected. This book's somewhat old, and certainly before Black Lives Matter. And so I think it's we're going to have to rethink sort of these notions about what happens in this fallow period, if I you know can be a little bit use a little bit of hyperbole, because of course there was lots of activism, some of which I participated in between 1975 and 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 2008 or 2013, but. In a broader sense, right, we have to grapple with the relative, or you know, the best episodic impact of left-wing of progressive social movements in that period. And I guess I would say a couple of things, right? One is again, this is, goes back to this politics of scarcity. Uh, in a period in which the kind of political consensus was not only scarcity, but you know, the, the need to pull back state intervention, the and and the shift towards a kind of free market uh, economic competition in a, in a globalizing market when in fact you know the US sort of imperial advantage that of the post-war period has gone it turns out that there simply isn't the kind of breadth of constituencies uh, available to um, to really push forward the kinds of political change and economic changes or the, the real addressing of our, our political economy in that period then that that would have sustained the hopes of the 1960s i hope that was clear right that you know whether it's white work growing conservatism in the white working class both some of it racist some but a lot of it simply kind of almost kind of like defensive i would say uh but also the ways in which you know, the benefits of the New Deal system had produced a kind of certain kinds of prosperity among New Deal voters who, whose children end up being moving to the right and in really interesting ways. And you have and, and kind of materially, materially incorporating white ethnics as white. It, exactly. That's right. But it's also true. Right. I mean, and it's been really interesting work done about this, the ways in which um, white sort of professional class white liberalism becomes increasingly uh, unwilling to to support economic equity, right? So liberalism becomes identified. I mean, you know, some people attack this as identity politics. I think that's less interesting than than, than viewing it as, again, very rights oriented, very much focused in on uh, on access and opportunity, but not focused in on or just largely ignoring or you know playing down the ways in which. Uh, professional class people benefit from an increasingly unjust economic system. You know, so I think we have to, we, there was a tendency, and I, I don't think I was fully, to, to bemoan the failures of the next generation of political leadership in the black community as if they kind of voluntaristically failed, right? As opposed to suggesting they were unprepared for um, these both shifts in demography and political economy that were they just created a really hostile terrain for that work. And what we see in part with Obama, and I, and I say this with some caution, because I don't, he's obviously his, his economic agenda is really much more part of that neoliberal moment. But 
you know, his racial politics and the, and the ways in which certain constituencies respond to that, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, nobody, all of us thought there was no way that this white America would elect a black man as president and the ways in which liberal communities responded to that. And then more importantly, with Black Lives Matter's response, emergence as in fact, again, a, a critical response to the failures of Obama's kind of the kind of post-racialism that it kind of adhered to Obama's politics and the insufficiency uh, of representation. And yes, and the right, and the and the right, and the finding of a kind of politics that allows you to act on that. And I think that's that's perhaps the point, right? Because there's nothing new about it with the black community saying political representation has failed us. That goes, you know, I I was working on that stuff in the late '80s and early '90s, but it, nobody could figure out or ge- or generate a. In fact, a lot of that politics was actually neoliberal, right? People said, well, we, you know, we're going to we're going to use our consumer power to get cons- to get the private sector to fund our programs and things like that. What Black Lives Matter and that kind of whole politics emerges is it begins to develop a, a, a re-articulation of the power of protest and of social movements, a much more critical relationship to electoral politics, um, and a new ideas about leadership that are deeply influenced, right, by not only key figures like Ella Baker from the 1960s, but also of the kind of critique of the limitations of a masculinist leadership. Um, some of which I try to talk about in my book. What's a what's inspiring about that gener this generation is you know which I am too old to really include myself is the ways in which they refashioned a social movement politics that has that not only has remade race and the way race operate you know a racial politics of the moment um, and where obviously you know it's going to go one way or the other in a few months, but also forces us to rethink the history of social movements not only of the 1950s and 60s but of um, this fallow period in between. Well, Matthew Countryman, thank you very, very much. Oh, this was a great pleasure. I, and thank you for remembering my book. It's <laughs> nice to be remembered. <laughs> Matthew Countryman is chair of the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, where he is also a professor of Afro-American Studies and History. He is the author of Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia, and he is currently working on a book on the role of African-American mayors in national debates on race and poverty in the late 20th century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself. Rather, they are officeholders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>